Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. All right, it should be on. There we go. Well, in the uh, 20th century in the United States, uh, back in, you know, right after World War I was done, and then uh, we rolled out into the Roaring Twenties, and that was the time. Any of you around then? Oh, no, okay. Uh, <laughs> the Roaring Twenties, as it was called, because it was a time of wild, all sorts of things, and, and the traditional understanding of sexual morality, which was a biblical Christian view of it, was, it for many people, was thrown away. And the foundations had been laid uh, for rejecting the gospel, rejecting the Bible as being what God says it is. And so the sexual morality boomed. And then we, we rolled out of that into the Great Depression. And that seemed to slow down a lot of what was going on. And into World War II, then into the 50s and a new time of prosperity, and we hit the 1960s. Now, I know some of you were alive then. And, uh, you know, it was the hippie movement and free love, and again, the biblical view of sexual morality was thrown out the window for many people. And it had a huge effect on our country, and we are still reeling from that today. Um, I mean, how many of you notice that, that people's views on sexual morality are different even than when you grew up, right, largely? Uh, and sexual morality has always been around, always been a problem in the world. I mean, it comes and goes, ebbs and flows, and we are certainly at a time where it is uh, the whole, all the views of, of human sexuality are being challenged actually not even conscious of that. It's just what it is. Let me share with you uh, 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 how, how this has affected us. I mean, how, do you think it's been good for us as a nation? Okay, so the National Library of Medicine, which is part of the National Institutes of Health, uh, did an analysis of broadcast media content. And, and it was really a study about how our young people affected by this, but here's what they, they saw. They said, on average, teenage viewers see 143 incidents of sexual behavior on network television at prime time each week, with portrayals of three to four times as many sexual activities occurring between unmarried partners as between spouses. As much as 80% of all movies shown on network or cable television stations have sexual content. An analysis of music videos indicates that 60% portray sexual feelings and impulses and a substantial minority display provocative clothing and sexually suggestive body movements. Analysis of media content also show that sexual messages on television are almost universally presented in a positive light with little discussion of the potential risk of unprotected sexual intercourse and few portrayals of adverse consequences. And I meant to say, as we began today, uh, as I was putting on my microphone, not thinking about it, is that this is probably a PG-13 sermon, okay? So, it, seriously, so I don't know, sometimes people keep their kids in here. It's up to you, your, your, your call, but I want you guys to know that, all right? Uh, and by the way, this is, again, this is the National Institutes of Health and the Library of Medicine. This is not... Um, 
someone like me who has a strong view about biblical morality trying to talk bad about people and things, okay? So, uh, and by the way, one other thing, there's nothing graphic today, okay? Just the subject. Nationwide, nearly half of all high school students have had sexual intercourse, half. Research suggests that even among teenagers who have not experienced intercourse, substantial numbers engage in other intimate sexual behaviors that carry health risks. Among adolescent girls in the United States aged between 15 and 17 years, 75 per 1,000 become pregnant each year. Those adolescents, which is 19% of the, almost one-fifth of the adolescent population, who report four or more lifetime sexual partners are at greater risk for contracting sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV. Overall, one-fourth of sexually active teenagers and 13% of all adolescents between the ages of 13 and 19 become infected with sexually transmitted diseases each year, representing three million cases, or about 25% of all new cases reported annually. And by the way, the fallout, some of those sexually transmitted diseases don't go away. They can be pushed back, but they don't go away, and they can be permanent results for some people. Uh, losing the ability even to have a child. Well, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, uh, what a crazy thing we even have to have one of those, right? But it says every 68 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. One out of six American women have been the victim of or of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. About 3% of American men have experienced an attempted or completed rape. From 2009 to 2013, Child Protective Services Agency substantiated or found strong evidence to indicate that 63,000 children a year were victims of sexual abuse. It's just hurtful, isn't it? A majority of child victims are ages 12 to 17. Of victims under the age of 18, 34% of victims of sexual assault and rape are under age 12. Sixty-six percent of victims of sexual assault and rape are age 12 to 17. So, and we go on and on, right? Uh, how has setting aside God's, God's standards for sexual morality, how well has that served us? Not well at all. Multiple problems. Like I said, we could go on and on and on. So, Today what we want to do is we want to look and see what does God actually say about sex. Let's remind ourselves of this and then say what, what does that mean and how do we deal with it. Now it is a sensitive topic for lots of reasons. Uh, so hang in there with me today, okay? Especially if you hear something and go, wait, I don't know if I like that or I'd... Just hang in there with me, okay? Let's, let's get to the end with this. Now, where we're going to go... To, to lay this down, what God's standards are, is in the book of Genesis. We were there last week, I think, weren't we? We've been off. We're there often. You know why that is? The book of Genesis, especially those first 10, 11 chapters, there is so much there that lays the foundations for so many other things in the Christian life. And you think, we go back to the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s with the rise of the theory of evolution and people saying, oh, now we don't need God to explain this stuff. And so the scriptures were, you know, again, they were not accepted as widely accepted and that set everything in motion. If we lose the first 10, 11 chapters of Genesis, we have no foundation for the kinds of things we're gonna talk about today and many other things as well. 
Okay, so let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Genesis. And we're going to look at passages we already looked at recently. But we're going to look at it for a different reason, from a different perspective. So Genesis chapter 1, page 2 in the Bible that's under the chairs there in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, you encourage you to pick up one of those and follow along, starting on page 2. So here... Genesis 1, we have this, this overview of the creation story, God creating the lights and then the, the plants and then the animals, the fish, uh, the, the land creatures. And then we're on the, the sixth day here. He brings forth all of the animals that we typically think of as animals. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we talked about that last week, right? That, that we are made in the image of God, and it's hard to nail down exactly what that image is, okay? Uh, but there's very definitely the stamp of God's image on every human being. Sin has messed it up. Sin has scarred it. Sin kind of covers it, but it's still there. We're still made in his image. And male and female were made in his image. Verse 28, then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God puts the, this first man, this first woman in charge of creation, and, and all of us since are under that as well. Um, but let's, let's look here in verse 28 again. He said to them, first thing he says, and be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Okay? Now, most of the time when I ask you a question, I'm ask, looking for someone to answer it out loud. Don't do that now. But I do want you to answer it in your head. How in the world are they going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? We all know, don't we? That's right, okay. Uh, there's going to be uh, a sexual intimacy that results in the reproduction of human beings, okay? So this is on the sixth day, but move, look down at verse... Before we go there, on, on several of the days, God looked at what he had done and said, this is good. This is good. This is good. But on this sixth day, verse 31, then God saw everything he had made and indeed it was, what's the next word? Very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So God looking at, he's, he's completed his creation and he's probably talking about the whole thing being very good. But I want you to understand, this includes the sexual relationship between husband and wife as being from his perspective, which is the right perspective, very good. It's part of what was very good, okay? Now let's go over to chapter two and look at the actual creation. So in chapter one, God gives this overview, you know, this day, the next day, sixth day, seventh day, rests. chapter two, he gives us the details of how he created Adam and then how he created Eve. Well, let's look. We've got Adam already created here. And let's go to verse 21. Because it's still just Adam at this point. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. 
And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Now, real quick, if I gave you a rib and said, here, make a living being out of this. You go, that's crazy, right? And people read this sometimes, so that's crazy. But it's not for God. If God can make the rib that he borrows from Adam, he can certainly create uh, another being out of it, which is what he does here. Verse 22, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. He's talking about this is what we consider marriage here. It's when they leave home and they come together uh, and this idea of being joined, that's the marriage idea, they shall become one flesh, includes the sexual relationship. But it's more than that. It's this level of intimacy that there's no other way to have, okay? And so this oneness includes the sexual relationship. And um, then I think we see this kind of not hinted at, just stated verse 25, and they were both what? It's okay to say that word. And they were both, that's right, the man and his wife and were not ashamed. And so sin hasn't come into the world. They are both naked. And I, I, I really think here in verse 23, when Adam said, it's now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And we see a little bit of this here, but in the Hebrew language, the word for man is ish. The word for woman is isha, okay? And I just got this sense that Adam has, you know, been naming all the animals and it says he realized there was no one like him, no one connected to him. Uh, and so God makes the woman and then he wakes Adam back up and Adam sees her and he immediately recognizes that she is human like him. And he says, ish. And then he looks at her and he goes, ah, oh. <laughs> Okay. And so this, this idea of this, the sexual relationship, which God he establishes a marriage relationship and within that relationship, he establishes the sexual relationship. And it is very good. So let's talk just a little bit about God's design for sex. The three things we wanna think about here. First one is this, that sexual intimacy is intended to be intensely pleasurable in a way that creates a deep, strong, and intimate bond between husband and wife that goes beyond sex. Okay, so this is the purpose of sex is to, to put us in place to an experience and intimacy that we would not otherwise have. Now, I just, the Lord just put it in my heart at this very moment to say to you, because even the statistics we read and things like this and because of what may have happened in your life, you know, this whole idea of sex being a good thing may not even seem remotely true to you, okay? Once again, hang in there. We're talking about the way God intended for it to be. Sin has come into our world and certainly created all sorts of problems in that, all right? But this is, he intended sex to be intensely pleasurable. We know that it's intensely pleasurable and we know that that's one of the reasons that it's such a problem as well when it gets outside of God's boundaries. Okay, so the second thing here is this. Sexual intimacy in marriage is intended to point us 
to an even greater and deeper intimacy that is available to us in our relationship with God. And so when, I entitled the sermon, Good Sex, but when so you have a good marriage relationship and a healthy sexual relationship in that, there's an intimacy there between those two people that they have with nobody else in the world. Nobody else shares that with them. It is only them. And what we discover is that God is the one who made this and designed it. And like all things that God has done, good things, we don't just look at it, but we look at the one who gave it, right? And so this points us to the Lord. Uh, Third truth here that we see, God's design. Sexual intimacy is reserved for one man and one woman whom God has made one by reason of their lifetime commitment in marriage. Now, marriage could look different at different times. We don't know if they had marriage ceremonies. That isn't the point. They just two came together to be one for the rest of their lives. Okay? We say in the marriage ceremony, till death do us part. That's God's intent. Now, we know that things don't always go the way God says they should go. We understand that, okay? But that is his intent. Is this clear? Yes. Fairly straightforward, okay? All right. So, um, this idea of being limited to the boundaries of marriage. In Hebrews it says this, that marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, what he's saying here, this idea of marriage, honorable thing, but he says in the bed undefiled, what he means is the sexual relationship is pure and holy between a husband and wife. Okay, sex is not bad. You know, you may have grown up feeling like sex was bad. And, and sometimes that's just outright not, you know, saying something isn't true, but can also be this idea of, oh, you know, you gotta wait, don't do this, all kind of stuff, and you start to feel like sex is bad. But God tells us that sex in a marriage relationship is not bad, it's good. And not only is it good, it's what? Very good, okay? When things are going the way God intends. Now. So we see that this is God's standard. And so this, this clearly sets the standard. But while it clearly sets the standard, it doesn't solve the problems that we face in this area today. It doesn't solve uh, how, how does a parent deal with a child who's living outside these boundaries. And by the way, anything that isn't one man, one woman committed for life sex relationship is beyond the boundaries, okay? Um, so how does a parent, do that? how does a child respond to an, a, an adult parent who says, I'm homosexual, I'm gay, I'm lesbian? How does, do brothers and sisters deal with that with each other, with friends? How do we deal with those kinds of things? Um, and so we're going to talk about that today, okay? Those are the kind of things we're going to talk about today. And so we see here are some of the sex-related problems in our culture today in society. We have heterosexual fornication, and by fornication, the word fornication sounds kind of like, what word is that? But it means sexual uh, intimacy outside, sexual intimacy of any kind outside of marriage, Okay? of any kind. So heterosexual fornication, heterosexual adultery, homosexuality, sexual abuse of children, sex trafficking, pornography, that's huge. 
gender identity issues, right? And on and on we could go, okay? So how do we deal with this? Well, this is, it is a sensitive topic. It's a sensitive topic just in and of itself. You know, this is something that we all hang around out and talk about, hey, let's talk about sex today. You know, because it's, it's, it's so very personal. In fact, we probably ought to be able to do a better job of talking about sex, okay? But it's very sensitive, and as I said earlier, some of you have experienced terrible things in your life that are hurtful. Some of you find yourself in situations now, not either maybe your own struggles or the struggles of someone that you really love. Or maybe someone that you really love doesn't even seem to be struggling and they're living outside these boundaries. Okay, so uh, because of that, I need to stop talking about sex for a minute and talk about some core truths for human beings. Because we need to have these things, go ahead and go to that Silas, we need to have these things nailed down. We need to have a biblical worldview in order then to address the sexual issues from a biblical worldview. So core truths for human beings. First, God values every human being more than we ever could. Okay? Every human being, from the ones that we think are the nicest people in the world to the ones we view as the most despicable, God values them. He loves them. How do we know that? Well, he made them with his image. Secondly, his only son, Jesus, came and died for their sins, didn't he? Just like he did for ours. Okay? Um, let's see here. Yeah. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says that God showed his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? So he values every human being more than we ever could. And let me say that in, in some of these things here that I'm dealing with today, I'm not going to take time and go to every, every time and show you a Bible verse. Okay? Um, it's just for time's sake, all right? I assure you that the things we're looking at are based on biblical truths. And so if you um, have any questions about that, feel free to text in a question or talk to me afterwards, okay? So God values every human being more than we ever could. Secondly, people's greatest need in life is to be reconciled to God through Christ. Everything else, you know, all the changes that need to come, Everything else comes after surrendering to Christ as Lord and Savior. Okay? In other words, we can look at someone and say, wow, they aren't living the way they're supposed to. They need to change. Well, here's the deal. Do they know Jesus as Savior? They might, but they might not. Do they? And if, if they don't, guess what? Unsaved people think like unsaved people. Unsaved people live like unsaved people. All right? So we can't have that expectation. It's not about trying to get anybody to change. It's about getting the seed that they need, Jesus, right? And once you receive Christ as Savior, then he changes you inside, and so the change can be working its way out into your life. The third core truth here is that God's ways revealed in God's word are God's best for every human being, whether they realize it or not. And this is in any area of life. What God says about it is what's best for us. How often? Always. Always. That's right. But what if I don't believe it? It's still what? 
what's best for us. Did you have, if you've, if you've had kids, you raised them, did they ever, did you ever know what was best for them and they thought differently about it? And were you right? Yeah, you knew what was best for them. Same thing for God. What God says in his word is always best for us. And that was, that, that is really good for us to grasp. Okay. And then uh, scripture says, as for God, his way is perfect. Psalm 18, his ways are perfect. Okay. They're the best. Uh, And then he says, but if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, talking about the word, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. The blessings of God come. Not only are his ways the best, but then he also blesses us in addition to that for living that way. Okay. The fourth core truth here is this, that God reaches out to the world through his people, which is who? Us. To bring people into a saving relationship with him, no matter what they've done or what their struggles are. Everybody needs the gospel. And we can't think, well, that person, there's what they, no, no, we don't do that. Okay? Because that isn't what God did with us, did he? No. Okay, and then the fifth core truth is this, that repentance, this is a long one, okay, repentance away from our own ways and toward God, that's what repentance is, a change of of mind, a change of direction. Repentance away from our own ways and toward God along with personal faith in Christ and his saving work are the only way to experience freedom from sin's consequences. The only way. We have to turn away to the Lord and trust. And this happens immediately for salvation, that moment when we receive Christ as Savior, when we realize, we acknowledge that we've sinned against the holy God and and we're in trouble, we're separated from God because of that and we're on our way to hell because of it. And then we understand that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, lived a perfect and sinless life, died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, rising again three days later. And then he offers us, if we'll acknowledge that we've sinned against him, if we'll believe that Jesus is who he, the Bible says he is, and he did what the Bible said he did, then we can, by faith, receive Christ as Savior. Lord, I trust you to be my Savior, and I trust you to forgive my sins. And, and he will do that. The moment he does it, you guys have heard me say it hundreds of times. The moment we receive Christ as Savior, we what? We have forgiveness. For how many sins? All of them. Yep. Besides the front row, how many of them? <laughs> All of them. That's right. And, um, and so they have that forgiveness. We receive eternal life, the life of the Lord within us, which means when we die, we go to heaven. Okay? And then uh, the third thing he does is he actually moves in. He, he unites himself with our spirit deep down inside and begins a process of change, helping us to become more and more like his son, okay? Uh, and that is what has to happen. So all of these things uh, we've talked about, these core truths for human beings apply not just to sexual things, but to all things, okay? And with respect to this idea, let me look like Acts chapter 20. Paul says, I proclaimed it to you, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And that means this idea of sanctify is to help you to become what God intends for you to be. For your life to become, begin to align more and more with what God says it ought to be. He's going to sanctify us in that way. And then he who calls you is faithful who also will do it. You're not on your own to do this. In fact, you can't do this on your own. 
But he is faithful. He will work in your life and he will bring you to those places in your life. And so let me kind of sum up an idea here about this core truth for human beings we've looked at. We are all in this together. We're all this in, in, in this together. We are. We all come to the Lord in the same way, if, if, assuming we come to the Lord. We all start off the same way as sinners. Uh, you know, we're all loved by Christ. We all have been called by him to love others. It's just we're, we're all in this together. Now, that doesn't mean we're all doing the same thing. Some people might be living better here and not so well here. And others might be living really well there and not so well here. But we're all in this together. And so you might be here today and because I, I know people struggle with this. I've struggled with it some of my own life, but do you have a past? And you know what I mean by a past? Go ahead and put that up, Silas. Do you have a past? You know, something that maybe you just assume you know, was different? Maybe something you just assume other people didn't know about? You know, especially at this point. Well, let me encourage you. God knows all about it. You might say, encourage me. What do you mean, encourage me, God? He does. And he knew all about it when he sent his son to die for all of your sins, including your sexual sins. So if you have sexual sin in your past, and I would venture to say that most of us, if not all of us do, you know, especially, you know, we're talking about a bunch of us grew up in this time when, you know, everything was changing. And uh, so, if you have a past, especially this area of sexual sin, God knew about it. He loved you. He sent his son to die for you and to pay the penalty for that sin, those sins, and every other sin. Okay. Now, so we're here all in this together. So how do we now say, well, what does God say? What does God actually say about human sexuality? Well, let's look at some truths about human sexuality. And the first one is this, that God is the author of sex, okay? He's the designer of human sexuality and the one who set the boundaries for it. We've already seen that, right? Okay, second truth. Like all things God created, sex was good. The blessing of God's design, okay? The third truth is this, that the sex drive and sexual experience is very powerful by God's design. Uh, he, he brought a, a man and a woman together in this lifetime commitment. And this, the sexual drive drives us together and keeps us pulling together and, and uh, keeps motivating us to keep the relationship uh, good in a way that works there. Um, and, and even to, you know, if we're going to fill the earth, he's going to give you the desire to do that. Okay. So it's very, very powerful. And that's the way God designed it. Okay. Uh, then fourth, the entrance of sin has negatively affected all of creation, including sex and God's purposes for it, right? Sin has messed things up. Sin always messes things up. Sin never helps. You can never say, well, I'm really glad I sinned, so now I know. You know, that's the lie that was told to Adam and Eve, right? You need to disobey God so you'll know. It's never good. Number five, sex unmoored, and that means like untied, loosened from, sex unmoored from its creator designer is a powerful force for sin in human beings. 
And powerful sin always wreaks havoc on people's well-being. In other words, all sin, let's do a little theology lesson here, okay? Is this a true statement? Sin is sin is sin is sin is sin. All sin is sinful before God. That's right. Doesn't matter, small sin, big sin, whatever. Before God, it's, it's wrong, okay? There's no comparison. In this life, though, the consequences of sin are very different. Okay? If you hide the fact that you've been sneaking to Dunkin' Donuts and eating a half dozen donuts today, eventually you won't be able to hide that fact. But anyway, you're hiding that. Your husband, your wife, and no, Glenda, I don't do that. Okay? Your husband, your wife, whatever, and you're, you're fibbing to them about it. That's not right. Okay? Uh, but sinning sexually has a huge impact. Just ask the person who's been sinned against sexually, right? I mean, adultery has a huge impact. Uh, living outside of God's boundaries, so huge impact. So this idea wreaks havoc on people's well-being. Think about this analogy. How, who in here on a, on a cold winter's day loves the fireplace? Oh yeah, we sit in front of the fireplace. Go ahead, Silas. That is... Okay, that's fires within the boundaries, isn't it? What a wonderful thing it is. But what happens when it gets outside the boundaries? Go ahead, Silas. Move that, please. Right? Outside the boundaries, it's damaging. And the farther it gets outside the, the boundaries, the, the more the damage is, the greater the damage is, okay? And so it's important that we learn to live within the boundaries. Uh, then number six, when a culture rejects God as creator designer, people lose the necessary foundation for making moral judgments in the area of sexual behavior and sexuality. Again, a lot of words, but let's think about this. If you reject God, maybe say he exists, but he's irrelevant to you. So you've, for all practical purposes, rejected him and what he says. How do you now make a decision about what's right and wrong? You don't have a foundation to make that decision anymore, do you? It's about how you feel, about what works for you at the moment, okay? And so this is what happens in a society. In fact, let's look in our Bibles, Romans chapter one. Page 1294 in the Bible, it's there in the chairs. Romans chapter one, start in verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So they're pushing back against what God says. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Uh, so God has made it evident that he exists. And how has he done that? Verse 10, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So this is the idea. God has shown that he is the creator. There's no way to get what we've got apart from the God of, as he's described in the Bible. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. You take away this foundation, you have no way to make good and right decisions. 
Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Doesn't this describe what we are seeing in our society today? Professing to be wise, we don't need that old myths anymore. We got this and the other thing. And okay, therefore, just think of the most ridiculous thing you've recently heard. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And by the way, that's not just a they thing. We're quite capable of that ourselves. We shouldn't, but we can be. And then he says this, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. We begin worshiping man. And then birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, the world out there, uh, uh, other place in the world, idolatry, the things that they worship. Verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. It's, if, if, that's, if you're gonna reject me, this is where it takes you in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchange the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Do you see this? Again, if, if you say no to the creator, that means you're saying no to design. There is no design. There is no purpose. It's just you do what you feel like whenever you feel like it. Do whatever you think works best for you. Because there's no creator who designed it to work. Is this, am I making, getting through here? Okay, all right. And then just the very first phrase of 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions and he goes on and describes. The idea is he, he lets them go where they're choosing to go. Um, And so this opens the door to all the kinds of things we're seeing today. And by the way, I hate to say it, it can get worse. It can definitely get worse. All right. And so uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses wrote these words. He says, you shall not at all do as we are doing here today. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Don't do that. No, do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. And so it is that standard that we need to do. So uh, the seventh truth here about human sexuality, the seventh, the last one we'll look at. The powerful pleasure of sex experienced outside of God's boundary, marriage, is always counterproductive to a person's well-being and eventually always brings negative consequences. Uh, it's because very often they say, no, it doesn't. But eventually it does. You know, sometimes it shows up right away. Other times it shows up later. But it always works against them. Romans chapter 1 and verse 27 is described as they burned in their lust for one another. Go ahead to that. And they received in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. In other words, there are negative consequences that come when we abandon God's boundaries. All right, so when we consider all that we've looked at, what God says about it, and we've talked about the boundaries, we have ruled out these kinds of things. We've ruled out mental lust, okay? We've ruled out pornography, ruled out sex outside of marriage, abusive sex anywhere, incest, adultery, homosexuality, any other kind of sex that's outside of God's boundaries of marriage. And so we rule them out. Still doesn't solve the problems we're facing. Solve some problems, but it doesn't solve the problems we're facing. And, and what I wanna challenge you about this, 
we have responsibilities toward people who aren't like us. We have responsibilities to people who are living outside these boundaries and experiencing the consequences of it. We have responsibilities to them because they're not outside the boundaries. They don't know God. We have responsibilities. So let's answer the question, what are our responsibilities to people involved in sexual sin? The first one is this, love them like everyone else. Because remember, we're all in this together. That's right. Love them like you would anybody else. And we ought to be loving people, shouldn't we? We are, the Lord told us to love others the way we love ourselves. So love them like everyone else. Secondly, live the truth yourself in love. And, and so the idea is these things we're talking about, you need to live in yourself. You have to think, okay, you know, some of the things we've talked about, there's a real high likelihood that some of us here today, yeah, we're kind of wrestling with that boundary in some area or another. Okay, we need to keep working on that. We need to be humble about that. And this is this idea of live the truth in love. Live the truth doesn't mean you don't have struggles, but you keep struggling and you're humble because of it. And so you can love and understand the other person who's having a problem with this. The third one is this, as God leads, speak the truth in love. In other words, if you have a relationship because you've loved them, you've lived before them, you have credibility, you've built a relationship, the Lord may very well open the door at some point to have a conversation. And if he does, speak the truth. How? Speak the truth in love. That means you care about the person you're talking to. And so you tailor your communication, not to fudge on the truth, but you, you, talk, you talk in such a way that you're helping them to understand the truth. Man, there is so much that shows up on uh, in YouTube, on Facebook, and Instagram, all this kind of stuff where the truth is being spoken, sort of, but definitely not in love. That can't be us, okay? We just cannot do that. We must speak the truth in love. And then finally, entrust them to God who loves them the most. Entrust them to God, pray for them. Ask God to work. God will not take away their free will, but he will be faithful to confront them with the things that they need to know and understand as they're making those decisions, okay? He will respond. And then let me leave you with this, this, this overarching idea, and that's the idea of compassion. Compassion. We need to have compassion towards people who, I mean, sometimes it seems like a lot of these people who are living outside the boundaries and, and for whatever their reasoning are, sometimes they can seem like the enemy. But they're not the enemy. They're not the ones that we're wrestling against. It's Satan and his powers, okay? Now, they may think that you're the enemy and they may treat you like an enemy. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. So if they set themselves up as an enemy, you, you love them back. You do good to them. You talk well about them. This idea of compassion considers how Jesus is described. It says, Matthew chapter 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Can you imagine finding yourself 
and we all are some extent, but just so strongly attracted to sex outside of the boundaries. So much so that you don't know what you do and you kind of think, well, this is who I am and, and the struggle is there. Anybody want to be in that position? We need to have compassion for people who experience these kinds of things, okay? And there's so much more to talk about. But we're going to stop here, okay? I think you have a foundation laid to make good judgments and to live the right way in these areas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and that you really do always have our best in mind. Help us to believe that and to lean into you and those truths. And, and if we need help, Lord, that we could we would look for it, get it from people who could help us. And, and I pray, Lord, that we will live as as you said, that you sent us out the way that you were sent. You came to save people who were sinners, who needed forgiveness, eternal life. I pray that we will go out in the world with that same mindset. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, let me say to you, you and I, I talked earlier just real quick about the, the um, idea of the pleasurable nature of sex and what that's supposed to be. Like I said, it's very possible, it happens a lot actually, that sometimes people are finding that that isn't the case in their situation. And if, that, if you aren't finding it that way, then let's get help, okay? Look for help. It's embarrassing, you say, but no, it's not. Just come. Come talk to me, Dave, talk to my wife, whatever. And we can certainly either help you, or depending on what it is, we can help you find a good biblical counselor who can help you with those things, okay? All right, let's see if I have any questions. If anybody dared to ask a question today, right? Yeah, actually we do, good. Okay. In Genesis chapter one and two, all seem to be out of order. Chapter one tells them to be fruitful and then chapter two he creates Eve. Was Eve there in chapter one? Uh, well, sort of, okay. Remember chapter one I said was an overview? of the whole process. God creating everything, creating man and woman in his image and all that, and he was done. Chapter two fills us in on how he did that. How did he create Adam? How did he create Eve, okay? So that's, that's the difference there. Good question. Um, really good question, okay. Um, I'm going to just kind of paraphrase some things here. It's talking about uh, a couple that's been together for a long time in a committed relationship. Uh, and the statement here is, I don't see us as fornicating sinners because of our commitment to each other. Are we not accepted as good Christians? Um, it is possible for a couple to make a lifetime commitment and not go through marriage ceremony or uh, the legal aspects of it. That's possible because there are certainly cultures that do that. Uh, we see in the Old Testament that when they went to find a, a wife for Isaac, it says when she came, uh, she went with them into the tent and they were married. I mean, that was it. But what you have to ask yourself, I think, is this. Why are we not getting married? Because in our culture, we do get married, right? Um, 
Why aren't we getting married? And, and again, the, the, the real key is that there should be a once and for all lifetime commitment between these two people who are then free to have that sexual relationship that God described. And when the, the question about are we not accepted as good Christians, um, really, I, I, I understand where that's coming from, but it's really not the point because that's what I said, we're all in this together, right? We all struggle. I, I think if we go around the room, there's some way for us all to be honest, we would all say, well, I am struggling with this sin. Maybe I've allowed this in my life and I actually haven't dealt with it. We all have a lot of those kind of things. And so, the uh, person who asked this for you, it's, um, you just got to decide, why aren't we getting married then? Let's just get married. That would be my encouragement to you, okay? Now, do I need to talk more about that? And it's okay if you say, I need to hear more. That doesn't mean you ask the question. Anybody? Okay, well, feel free to come up and talk to me afterwards because, once again, I, I try. So I think here's the same thing, kind of idea. If two people who are in love and dating but not married yet but will be have sexual relationships, is that outside of God's intentions? And I would say, yes, it is. I think it is outside of God's intentions. It's very understandable in our culture, right? It's very understandable where we're coming from. Uh, all the time we can learn things I still learn things sometimes that I'll go, oh, oh, wow. I should be doing something different here. Do I mean it's kind of a new thing to me, a new insight? And so, and I knew when I went to preach this sermon that there were going to be people here who are going to go, what? I get that. Um, but what I would say is this, whatever you do, lean into the Lord. Ask God, God, what do you want me to do? Lord, do you want us to get married? Should we be married? Ask him with a willingness to do whatever he says. Okay? And, um, yeah. There's more I could say. But just know that God loves you, we love you, and we want you to grow. Know the Lord. Okay? Very good. That's it as far as questions at this point. Feel free to ask me afterwards another time. And this ends this series. Pastor Dave will be preaching next week and then uh, we'll be starting on Philippians for the summer. Tons of good stuff in Philippians. So. And I, I imagine today we probably uh, caused more questions than we answered. But that's all right too, okay? Again, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that those who find themselves struggling with some of these things, even as we looked at questions, Lord, I pray uh, that they would know this is not about... Uh, anybody here being judgmental. Uh, Lord, that we are in this boat together. We need you to work in our lives. And I do pray, Lord, that you'll help them to look at where they're at and to take it up with you and to be willing to do whatever you would really show them to do. And I pray they would consider your word in that. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.